0: Welcome to the Richie Flow Nutrition Podcast. My name is Cameron Borg. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Russell Ryter. Russell Ryter is a professor of cell biology in the Department of Cell Systems and Anatomy at UT Health, San Antonio, Texas. His research is centered around the impact of melatonin in biological systems. He is the editor-in-chief of Melatonin Research and on the editorial board of over 35 other journals. He is the recipient of numerous awards including three honorary Doctor of Medicine degrees and the Presidential Distinguished Scholar Award from UT Health San Antonio. He is also on the Clarivate Analytics list of highly cited scientists. At the time of recording, Professor Ryder's papers have been cited over 174,000 times. Russell is the world's leading expert on the topic of melatonin. His contributions to this field are unparalleled, and the work of him and his colleagues has shaped and will continue to shape the domains of research, including cancer, artificial light, sleep, neurodegenerative disease, circadian rhythms, and much, much more. Russell is one of my scientific heroes. His publications are thought-provoking, insightful, and most importantly, I feel they help people understand the importance of light-dark cycles and how they can live in a way that helps them age without the burden of disease. Russell is an inspiration and someone I certainly look up to. He's incredibly humble and has a great sense of humor which i think is a wonderful quality to have as a researcher as he pointed out to me during our conversation uh, he's been studying melatonin uh, since before my mother was even born so he's really been walking the walk for a really long time in our conversation we also delved into uh, using supplemental melatonin uh, particularly as we get older i just wanted to make sure it's understood that the information in this podcast is not medical advice. Uh, Russell and I had a great time talking about his research that he's been involved in over the years and the ideas that he holds as a result of this research, but make sure you speak with your doctor before blindly using any supplements. So, with all that being said, I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, how's things over in Texas?
1: Very well, thank you. Uh, We seem to have gotten by COVID and all is well. How about in Australia? You still have COVID?
0: Um, it's lingering around, but uh, I think most people are just pushing through now and um, looking looking forward to getting back to normalcy.
1: What city are you in? I'm
0: in Sydney, so just about an hour Sydney, out of yeah. the city.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've visited Australia several times, so I know where things are generally. I haven't been to uh, Ayers Rock; it's one place I want to go. I haven't been to Perth. I but, can definitely recommend ASRock. It's uh really been, yeah. it's it's
0: phenomenal. It's
1: mo- moving.
0: Uh, it's the gravity of the place is unlike anything else.
1: I got you. Yeah. I got you. Yeah.
0: Um. So, how did you get into studying melatonin? Because it's such a fascinating topic to me, and you are the guy.
1: Well, if you're really interested, I'll tell you. I received my PhD degree in nineteen sixty four. I had a military obligation, so I spent two years as a captain in the United States service, but since I was a PhD, I was assigned to Edgewood Arsenal, Maryland, which was the Army Chemical Center. That was Seven years, that was 1964, seven years after Sputnik. You know what Sputnik was? And the United States was already discussing the likelihood that we were behind the Russians and that we have to send a person to Mars soon, already in 1964. But they envisioned, at the time, we had was a two or a three-man small capsule. And they said, well, these astronauts, since it's going to take them six months to get there, they're going to be bored out of their mind in that little bitty capsule, and there's going to have to be a lot of resources and food and water. So what we have to do is get the astronauts to hibernate. So they charged me and two other Civilian scientists, I was a military, there were two civilian scientists, the job of isolating the factor that causes hibernation in animals with the intent of using it on astronauts. Well, melatonin had also just been discovered six years previously, and we started looking at hibernators and looking at drugs that may impact them, and one thing we jumped upon was melatonin. Melatonin is not the hibernating factor, but it has some features in terms of temperature regulation and so forth that suggest it could be usable. So since then, October, Friday, 1964, I don't know the date. I recall the day I made the decision mentally that this is my research, melatonin. Uh, nothing was known at the time, of course, it was six years after discovery. So I was really in on the ground floor, which, but it was US space program that, that enticed me. And ironically now, of course, all astronauts use melatonin to regulate their sleep, weight cycle and adjust their circadian rhythm. So it's come first full circle that's
0: a that's an incredible story I didn't know your backstory um, but yeah that that makes a lot of sense now that you mention it um, so I guess at that time there was no real distinction between pineal melatonin and cellular um, melatonin there were, we we hadn't discovered that at
1: the time so- not at all no <laughs> the only thing we knew is, that the pineal gland was the source of this molecule, and the only reason we knew that is when we removed surgically removed the pineal gland, melatonin was no longer present. That at least in the blood that we in could blood. measure, right. and that's the, That's it. Believe me, that's the only thing we could measure. And the assay that we used was extremely crude. It was not even radioimmune assay yet. We used a, a bioassay, and the bioassay used a fish called a pencil fish that has a black line down its side that's responsive the pigment is responsive to melatonin so if you put some melatonin in water and they take the melatonin in that line shrinks and you measure it and you get some very 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 crude estimate of of melatonin like i say times are very very different now Everything at a moment's notice, we can have the answer. But back then, pretty primitive. <laughs> yeah, things have progressed a long way. So, I, I presume, Cameron, you know, I, I presume you, because you're a nutritionist, you are interested in the plant levels of melatonin.
0: Yeah, so well, I mean, we oh. can jump into it now. I was going to yeah, ask well, you. No,
1: about- no, I, I just want to make sure you knew that. So, you go yeah. ahead with your questions and all right. Well, I wanted
0: to um, sort of highlight the difference between um, pineal melatonin, the stuff that you that you would find in the serum, versus the um, melatonin that's made in the cells, you know, every minute of every day. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, melatonin, of course, is melatonin is melatonin. Melatonin in the pipe, melatonin in the skin, melatonin in the liver, melatonin in the plant, uh, whatever. It it's the same molecule. The difference is... In you, for example, you have a pineal gland, hopefully, and it's releases, it produces melatonin every night and released into the blood right now. You turn on a light early this morning that suppressed your melatonin down to daytime levels. But in these cells, all the other cells that produce melatonin do not, do not release it into the blood. In other words, if I remove your pineal gland, I probably won't do that while you're on air, but if I do that, your blood levels of melatonin will essentially go to zero, but your cells will still be producing. So there's what we call a releasable pool of melatonin from the pineal gland and a non-releasable pool of melatonin from other cells. But in both cases, in both the pineal and in the cells, as you age, melatonin levels drop. Very, very significantly, and we think this is part and parcel of aging and of age-related diseases.
0: Yeah, that's um. It's it's a very precipitous drop, as as far as I can tell. Uh, once you once you get past about forty, I think I think it drops quite a
1: lot. Uh, it, it it's a gradual reduction. Some people actually, ironically, if you take people who are 75 years old and classify them as very poor health or good health, there is a difference in their melatonin levels. Those with good health have a relatively preserved melatonin rhythm. Now, the people argue that that's because the melatonin is preserving them from getting old, but that's, that's a guess because maybe they have better melatonin because they're in better health not the reverse so so that does not hold but generally as you age and in, in my case I'm 85 years old i i know cuz i can measure it i would not be producing any melatonin at all but i still have melatonin
0: so what are the what are the main roles of Um, both the different types, uh, the intracellular and the serum types of melatonin? What are their roles?
1: Well, the serum melatonin levels we feel, and it's also in the cerebrospinal fluid around Mm -hmm. the brain, and and it's actually in higher concentrations in the cerebrospinal fluid than in the blood. And there's a marked rhythm in the cerebrospinal fluid. We think That rhythm is for the purposes of the chronobiotic effects of melatonin, regulating circadian rhythms. I think that's the primary effect of that melatonin. At the cellular level, that melatonin is preserve energy production, scavenge free radicals that are produced in mitochondria, and help the cell to function optimally. Melatonin has a lot of, lot of functions at the cellular level. And all of them suggest that melatonin is beneficial for cells. And of course, the fact that you lose it with age could be significant in proving that association is very difficult because uh, you don't know which came first. Do they lose a melatonin age or do they age and lose a melatonin? And one thing is almost... Seems to be relatively firm is that melatonin delays or prevents the development of certain age-related diseases, particularly brain degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and so forth. And then it may also coincidentally prolong life because it's delaying these diseases. So whether it's a direct effect on aging or indirect because it's uh, influencing Diseases, we simply are not sure at this point. But I will say that. What are you going to use, What are you going to do with this information, Cameron? I don't want you to. What uh, are you going to do with
0: it? Well, I'm. I am going to put it out. So don't don't say anything incriminating or that um, unpublished work or anything. You're not not going. Well, no, to.
1: no, no, no. I, I, I think that. People beyond the age of 45 should consider supplementing with melatonin every night. That's my considered opinion on the basis of what I know melatonin is capable of doing. You lose it as you age, and its effects are such that we think it will be beneficial to aging. I'll have to say that I've been taking melatonin for 27 years. Like I say, I'm 85 years old. I actually wish I'd have started taking an earlier. I didn't start until I was 57. That's not a recommendation. I don't want you to say, well, writer says everybody should take melatonin. That's your choice. Yeah. All I'm telling you is what I know and experience and melatonin is a very wholesome molecule.
0: Well, you have a particular interest in the role of melatonin uh, in cancer development and metastases, um, if I'm-
1: Very much so.
0: Yeah, so can, can you talk a little bit about yeah. what role melatonin plays in cancer development and
1: progression? Yeah, that's very important. Um, melatonin inhibits the DNA damage that initiates a cancer It slows down the proliferation of cancer, but we think. We now think that one of the best advantages cancer a melatonin has in terms of cancer is preventing metastases. And that is very important by virtue of the fact that typically you do not die of the primary cancer. There are some exceptions, but for example, if you have a a black mole on your face. Very, very, very deadly cancer, but it doesn't kill you at all. You could have that mole all over your face, but it's when it metastasizes. And melatonin's ability to reduce metastasis seems to be very significant. And it, we only understand part of the mechanism by which it does that, but it prevents the breakdown of There's a lot of things around cells, extracellular materials and so forth that the cells have to wiggle through to get to a blood vessel. One of the things melatonin does is does not allow the breakdown of that material. It also, because of the metabolism, it keeps the metabolism of the cell in a state that is not reducing what is called a lot of lactic acid to make the environment, Acidic, and that's also very beneficial for preventing the cells from moving somewhere else. Metastasis, like I say, I mean you don't want any cancer, but what you really want to avoid most of the time is taking it taking up residence somewhere else. So melatonin's effect, uh, you know, again, it's not a recommendation, but well, obviously, I've taken melatonin for many years. I take it for many different reasons. Am I guaranteed that it'll protect me? No guarantees in life. I still may get cancer. I may get metastatic cancer. I may get Alzheimer's disease. But I'm trying to do what I can to defer, forestall, delay, any of those debilitating conditions of the aged. That's, you know, but like I say, there are no guarantees. And just if everybody take melatonin doesn't mean everybody benefit from it. People are still going to get some cancer. They're still going to get neurodegeneration. But if you're prone, I think it would be worth an attempt to delay.
0: From my read of, of your a lot of your papers and and even more broadly than that one two or two key things you want uh is a very very robust uh circadian rhythm you want to um make sure your light dark cycles are are really tight and regular Mm -hmm. each day and you want to keep your mitochondria really healthy uh throughout life as much as possible so what in our What in our environment today is really damaging the way that um, those two factors uh, help to um, deploy melatonin in a way that's going to be beneficial?
1: Firstly, what you just summarized is absolutely key. Strong circadian rhythms, good mitochondrial health. Well, the problem with current societies is one, one of the problems is the misuse of artificial light. Humans evolved over a period of three to four million years. And the light-dark cycle was determined by the rising and the setting of the sun. Now, I'm sure right now, it's, well, I guess it's light in your home. I see out a a window there where it's light. But you may have gotten up this morning, it was dark. And you turned on a light, of course, any light at night immediately. And you have to understand that. One-fourth to one-third of all the people, working people in the world, work at night. People generally misuse light. In Australia, you're a well-developed country. When the sun goes down in the afternoon, you don't go right to bed. You know, you just don't do it. And as a consequence, what we are doing is truncating, having a shorter melatonin increase because... On average, people, again, in well-developed countries usually rarely sleep more than eight hours and often sometimes only six. And that's the only time typically people are in darkness, even though the night length may be 12 hours. On you know, March 21st of this year, it was 12-12. It was equinox. But I bet there wasn't a person in Australia that slept 12 hours that night or in America or anywhere, well, maybe in maybe in Central Africa or somebody, yes. But this is the biggest hindrance, I think. And of course, the other thing is medications, a lot of medications, which are important for health also, they can prevent hypertension or whatever, but they also impact either their circadian rhythms or melatonin production. So you're kind of between a uh, a rock and a hard place. I mean, these medications are important, but also they have they have obviously severe side effects, or they wouldn't be prescription medications. They're prescription for a reason. They don't want you to use them unless it's absolutely necessary. So, so misuse of light is is rampant obviously, and especially, you probably know, it's is blue wavelengths of light. And now, maybe in Australia also, there's this switch to uh, light-emitting diodes, and they're very blue-rich. And as a consequence, they will likely have greater effect on the melatonin rhythm. Optimally, we would all... You know, be in darkness 10 hours a day and never have any light. I always remind people, especially my age. Obviously, when you get older, males have to get up at night usually for to relieve themselves. The important thing is that you don't miss, you don't turn on a light. You know, you you should be able to negotiate your home and use the facilities without having turn on a light. Unless you have to, once you go to bed at night, avoid light until you get up, minimally, minimally.
0: So what impact do you think artificial light is having on the incidence of cancer and neurodegenerative disease and metabolic disease?
1: <clears throat> Very good question. Uh, I think it's significant, but there's a lot of intervening factors. There's diet, and there's pollution, and there's light, and there's you know all types of pollutants, pollutants in the air, like the fires in Australia last summer. I mean, you had a lot of... And that's going to contribute to, over the long run, some malfunction of the lungs, asthma, and so forth and so on. But it's not unique to Australia. We have just similar problems. And China has very serious problems with pollution. So it's tough to make a, a judgment about cause and effect, specifically how much light. But let me put it this way. It doesn't help. I mean, if you are... I, again, I remind people that For example, there are a lot of working people that are relatively regular in terms of their light-dark cycle. On beginning Sunday to Thursday night, they go to bed at 10 o'clock because they have to work the next day and get up at 6 or 7. But then on the weekend, gentlemen like you who are young say, well, now it's party time. So you're up to 4 in the morning. And, And there's always this... You are inducing something similar to jet lag in other words your circadian cycle is and then on a the weekend two days you are altering your circadian cycle so during the week you are not quite in sync and again that may be consequential in terms of in terms of our, well is consequential in terms of our overall health I mean we let's face it we abuse ourselves badly we really do but that's the nature of the beast. What are we going to do? Uh, You know, it's not likely we're going to shoot out all the lights and clean up all our air, don't use prescription drugs and so forth and so on. So we have to learn the limitations of what what we can do and make the best judgment we can.
0: So, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, we're not going to, you know, remove all the lights from our house and and cover and blindfold ourselves as soon as the sun sets. So, I was wondering what your opinion on, um, you know, these these red tinted glasses, the, oh. the blue blocking glasses. Do you think that they might play a role in helping
1: us to preserve our
0: melatonin at night?
1: Good, good question, Kevin. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm often asked that, and now they become relatively popular. Apparently they're pretty well known also in Australia. The ones you showed, for example, you put them on, but they're not wraparounds. Sh- show me them again, show them to me they're again.
0: Just a, they're just a stand. Yeah, here. exactly.
1: They're not wraparounds, so still the light's coming in from the side. Yeah. But even if it isn't, if you use blue filtering glasses, I don't think it would hurt if every evening at 7 o'clock, particularly if you're going to watch uh, the tube or something because there's a lot of blue wavelengths of light associated with and also your computer screen, I don't see any reason you shouldn't wear them, but I don't know how effective they are because it's unless you're extremely diligent, you'd probably take them off before you go to bed and have on regular lights, and that would immediately readjust your clock. So you'd have to turn out the lights before you, you know, it gets, it gets unbelievably complex and so forth. Uh, but they are, they are used now in some hospital settings also. Uh, and in regard to that, I think that's one place that we do a severe injustice to patients. The worst place to be if you're sick is in the hospital. <laughs> if you're concerned with circadian rhythms and light pollution, and so forth. my, I'm in a medical school building, which is right next to the hospital. And I often go very early and I look up at the hospital and at least half the lights in the rooms are on, you know, and they probably have been on most of the night and, and that's, it, it, it's well known now that individuals in intensive care for example do better if they have some kind of a regular light dark thing circadian rhythms cannot be underestimated they are very very critical so their those glasses are okay they don't do any harm and if you use properly they may do some good
0: okay good i'm i'm glad i got that um got your opinion on that um i also wanted to ask um Extending beyond the visible wavelengths of light that um, impact our production of melatonin, I was just wondering if there's any impact of um, electromagnetic fields, things like Wi Fi, cell phones, on the functioning of the pineal gland.
1: That is an interesting proposition. That was big business in the 1990s. Again, you were just probably barely born. But at that time, there was a major interest in non-visible, extremely short frequency electromagnetic radiation. I would say in general, they didn't pan out to have major effects on the circadian melatonin rhythm, but that does not mean that these wavelengths, especially when you use a cell phone very close to your head and so forth, that is not influencing synaptic transmission, or other important functions of your your. You know, there are reports that people who use cell phones for x number of hours daily do have some, some neural cancer and so forth. Again, the connection is very difficult to make because there's so many other factors. But I think it would be prudent not to overuse. In other words, cell phones, again, an item we're never going to get rid of. Most people your age in particular can't live without your your device. I can still, I carry it, but I can live if, if I don't have it. But the point is, unless you need it, I think you should not use it. But But now texting has become so readily available nobody even talks on a phone anymore it, it could, we're going to lose our voice the way i figured in a couple thousand years humans won't be able to talk at all they'll just have long <laughs> fingers for, for as we evolve for texting <laughs> that's
0: a, that's a science fiction novel right there you've just got to write it now yeah
1: i, I see i see a group of teenagers sitting around a table and they're all texting and they're probably texting the person right across the table from it. So, um, I,
0: yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you about um, maybe other sources of melatonin. I know we can supplement, but um, pistachio nuts seem to have the highest amount of um, melatonin for a food. Am, am I am I correct in that?
1: Well, that's the report. I know what you're referring to. Generally, I'll tell you that seeds, seeds, nuts have higher concentrations than other pores. And the reason for that is interesting. The reason they do is seeds and nuts are generally fatty, and fatty acids are very easily oxidized, destroyed by free radicals. And more importantly than that, the nut – the seed, like your sperm or a woman's oocyte, is the next generation. If that seed is not protected, that will not germinate, and theoretically that species would become no longer existent. If pistachios have the highest concentration, and certainly the data that has been published there's only that one report that I know. It makes sense because the, the, this plant, the pistachio tree can survive in the most arid conditions. It can survive in extreme environments. And we know in plants that melatonin, and maybe even in animals, melatonin can be upregulated If you take a plant, virtually any plant, and now hundreds have been tested, and put them in a stressful environment like a drought or extra heat or cold, what they immediately do is upregulate their melatonin to protect them from that damage. And that, we recently wrote an article, for example, the global warming, if you buy into that, that's, Again, opinion that different people have. If global warming is persistent, it is obvious that plants or food crops, such as rice, certain strains of rice do not do well, even with an average increase of nighttime temperatures by two degrees. And we just suggested recently that to overcome that issue, we'll have to start genetically engineering plants to produce more melatonin to protect against that excess heat at night. And I think that's, a, I think that's something that we'll, will seriously be done. Several plants have already been genetically engineered to increase their melatonin content. There's one strain of Microtom tomato, there's a cup of strains of rice, but I think we're gonna see more and more of that because melatonin really protects plants from adverse environmental conditions. This has been documented thousands of times. What is interesting about melatonin plants, the discovery of melatonin plants did not come until 1995, which much after, and. A, I don't know if you know this, but it was my lab that discovered melatonin plants. We are animal biologists, but we happen to have a couple. I happen to have a couple of postdocs that were playing around with plants. And we discovered two papers. We've published two papers in 1995. For 10 years, that data was totally overlooked. People said, ah, they're not melatonin plants last year 2021 there were more publications on plant melatonin than there were on animal and human melatonin this has become a major 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 field and i'm still involved in it because i collaborate with a lot of scientists around the world on on plant studies a plant melatonin is making big strides in in terms of agricultural applications. And I think it will continue. I think it'll be somewhat of a lifesaver for a lot of plants because if we can genetically engineer and produce more melatonin, which we have suggested in several publications, I think we'll be able to save some of the What seems to be of importance for a lot of plants is the nighttime temperature. Daytime temperatures seem to be somewhat more tolerable but if it's too warm at night they seem to falter and that's and and there's where I think we can plants can really benefit from having more melatonin but melatonin plants is Phenomenal implant It influences root growth. It influences flowering. It influences obviously seed development. Influences even the quality of fruits have been shown to be improved taste. There's all kinds of measurements plant of fruit. People do that determines the quality of fruits, and melatonin seems to be extremely good at that. So. But it's ironic that an animal biologist, or well, we discovered melatonin in plants. And but it was, like I say, overlooked for 10 years. But now, now it's really blooming.
0: So if melatonin's in plants, that means it's the molecule is likely billions of years old. Is that is that a correct
1: assumption? We think I always put it this way, melatonin is older than dirt. Prokaryotes that evolved about 3.5 billion, in other words, bacteria. Bacteria produce melatonin. And what happened over a billion or so years, these were, then there was the evolution of early eukaryotes, which have a nucleus, and they were eating the bacteria. And they eventually decided, they didn't decide, they didn't have a brain, but what eventually happened is the bacteria that were engulfed for food eventually evolved into the mitochondria. And we think that is why the mitochondria produced the melatonin, because they're precursors. So, really, mitochondria are bacteria that are growing in cells. That's how they evolved. You know, about 2.5 billion years ago, plus or minus 10 or 15 million years. It, it, when you think about it, 3 billion years ago, that's 3,000 million years ago. That's a long time for melatonin to be around. So it's not surprising that it has a lot of functions. It's learned over a very, very, very long period how to interact with other molecules, how to be, how to be preserved and how to benefit their the organisms that they're supporting. Yeah, melatonin, so far as we know, is 2.5 to 3.5 billion, 3,000 million years. Incomprehensible, incomprehensible. Even before I was born. (laughs)
0: So I'm assuming because it's so old, it's going to be playing some very, very crucial and uh, non-negotiable roles in in biology. And... It seems. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as though the transformation of I think it's tryptophan to serotonin, and then goes to melatonin. Is that is that a very crude? Is this,
1: is, would you repeat that, Cameron? A transition
0: tryptophan. from so tryptophan um, gets converted uh, to serotonin, and then serotonin right. gets converted to melatonin. Is that is right. that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So There's in a that, couple of other intervening molecules, but it's from tryptophan and. Yeah. You, you cannot make tryptophan. Plants can make their own tryptophan, but we cannot.
0: Yeah, so in, in those steps, and there are probably, yeah, like you said, there's a, there's a few in between those major ones, but what, um, what cofactors do you, are you aware of that you need to make that conversion so that you're actually
1: ending up with melatonin? Well, in, for example, a conversion of serotonin to N-acetyl which is then converted to melatonin, that enzyme seems to be determined the amount of melatonin, that is the rate limiting and called n transferase or alkyl-alamine N-acetyltransferase. A very important cofactor is required for that step. And that is acetyl coenzyme A. Well, acetyl coenzyme A is produced in mitochondria from pyruvate and Cancer cells, and many other pathological cells, exclude pyruvate from the mitochondria. And we predicted a number of years ago that they would have less melatonin in their mitochondria, and we now know we have a paper and press showing that that's exactly the case. They only produce about, ha- acetyl-CoA can be produced by some other roots, fatty acid oxidation in the mitochondria and so forth, but they do not not produce as much melatonin as we think they should. And since melatonin is an anti-cancer agent, if these cancer cells are not producing melatonin or enough melatonin, that may also contribute to their, the fact that they grow out of control. So this is one of the uh, i think that's maybe the key cofactor by virtue of the fact that it is it is involved with the rate limiting enzyme in melatonin production some of the other enzymes although the they there are cofactors involved they're not to the same degree as acetyl-CoA is for NAT and and like i say that Acetyl CoA. There's some evidence that it may also be produced in the cytosol, but certainly the bulk of it is in the in the mitochondria, and that requires pyruvate. And if pyruvate's not getting into the mitochondria, obviously you are familiar with Warburg type metabolism. We recently published, well, not recently now, three or four years ago, published a paper indicating that maybe Warburg type metabolism. You know, was originally thought to be unique to cancer. Now, many, many pathological cells use Warburg metabolism, aerobic glycolysis. And we think that may be part and parcel of many diseases. In other words, the fact that their mitochondria are not producing much melatonin, it's compromising ATP, which is energy, which all normal cells need. And these pathological cells, if you can convert them back to oxidative phosphorylation via the mitochondria, you could reverse some of this pathology. And we know melatonin does some of that. I could explain mechanistically, but it gets very complicated. But there, I think there's, again, it's related to what I said earlier about disease prevention or delay, disease delaying. I think supplementing with melatonin beginning at, we don't know when. Ideally, what we do is measure your melatonin levels and decide when you should. But melatonin, you know, melatonin is easy to measure now. The only difficult part of it is, is getting blood samples in the middle of the night in darkness. <laughs> in other words... You, you want to know your nighttime. Yeah. That's
0: yep. what's important. Is it saliva so, that you use? I'm sorry? Is it saliva that you yeah, use? Yeah,
1: yeah, you can use saliva. Saliva is a little bit less reliable. The amplitude of the rhythm is less. It seems to be somewhat more variable, but that doesn't mean I'm not in favor of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easier than collecting blood samples. You know, there's cotton placettes you can put in your mouth, then centrifuge them collect them during the night. So yeah, there's saliva, but melatonin is every bodily fluid. If you want to blow your nose in the middle of the night, they'll see some melatonin there. If you're crying regularly, you collect those tears. <laughs> <laughs> melatonin, And there's even some evidence that it's in sweat. There's a, a scientist in Arizona, in the United States here that is looking at melatonin in sweat. So melatonin seems to be ubiquitous. Every organism, plant and animal, seems to have that good old molecule, melatonin.
0: So, I've heard a lot that um, the red and near-infrared uh, and even the uh, infrared uh, wavelengths uh, help to uh, produce melatonin, or they have some sort of effect on production and release of melatonin.
1: Is, is that is that true? Cameron, I have to ask you, how long have you been studying melatonin? You are really up to snuff. There's a uh-huh. lot of... Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and I've, I've read a lot of your papers, and I've read a lot of books, and I've spoken to um, some very, very learned people like yourself. Uh, I'm
1: fascinated by it. There Scott Zimmerman, who's a lighting engineer... I know them very well, obviously.
0: I've got your paper just just there. I see. I see.
1: <laughs> that, that paper, again, was one of those papers that didn't initially attract a lot of interest. Within the last year, however, a number of groups have become very fascinated by these. The implication is that infrared radiation, which penetrates several centimeters through the skin, has an immediate impact on locally produced melatonin. So again, the experimental evidence is not compelling in the sense that there have not been a lot of studies. It would be nice to expose an individual to, or a group of individuals to infrared radiation, which you get on a sunny day, and then take biopsies of the skin and measure the melatonin and so forth. Those studies have not been done yet, but I think, again, because of the, of how long melatonin has been around and that people evolved under natural conditions where sun was not, was now people hardly get any infrared radiation anymore. We're all indoor people. But we evolved from creatures that were living 100% outdoors, and during the day, they got a lot of infrared. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is, in fact, a significant factor in regulating local. It doesn't impact pineal, but local, and protects you from ultraviolet, and everything else. Melatonin is a very, very protective molecule. I'm working with some skin, you probably know the name Slominski. Uh, Angie Slominsky. he and I published a lot of papers on skin yep. melatonin production. But at any rate, uh, you know, it's, you know, again, I don't want you sending out a message saying, writer believes melatonin does everything. Writer thinks it's a miracle molecule. No, it's just a very good, wholesome, wholesome molecule that knows what it's doing. And it does it to the best of its ability. And everyone seems to benefit. Plants, animals, humans.
0: Yeah. How are we going for time, Russ?
1: Uh, We have a few more minutes.
0: A few more minutes. I'd love to ask you about... um, you know, using, using melatonin as a supplement. Um, I don't use it personally, but um, there seems to be uh, some differing opinions. Uh, some people I've heard, um, Dr. Andrew Huberman at Stanford, thinks that melatonin supplementation is generally not a very good idea. Um, so I was just wondering what, what's, what are your thoughts on the use of supplemental melatonin, um, particularly as, as in an aging population?
1: In an aging facility? In an aging population, just in in general, yeah. yeah. It's my personal opinion that that would be a very good idea in the sense that aging is associated with a lot of sickness and disease. I'll give you an example. Alzheimer's disease cost the economy of the United States about $250 250 billion not million billion dollars a year in healthcare. Imagine if we could delay that the onset or the severity of that disease by 2 years that'd be 500 billion dollars and there are many 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 diseases that are very expensive and most of them are in the elderly And if we can delay these diseases, first of all, you improve the quality of life of the individuals, if you can prevent the disease, reduce their duration of sickness, and they may actually die of old age. I always talk about that. When I die, I want to die of old age. And they say, well, what did he die from? He died of nothing. What do you mean he died of nothing? He just died right there. See on the floor he is. He's dead, but he has nothing. And and obviously, I'm I'm saying that facetiously, but it's my opinion that you're right. There are some people who say, we don't know the long-term effects. We live our life with melatonin. If it was bad for us, in fact, it's the loss of melatonin in advanced age that seems to be the problem, or a problem, not necessarily the problem. So... Like I say, I've been, I'll give you another example. Melatonin is becoming very, very, very common supplement. In 2021, in the United States, the amount of money spent on melatonin, listen to this carefully, the amount of mel- money spent on melatonin in 2021 was 1.1% billion dollars, that was a 180% increase since 2018. It's estimated that by 2025, that may even double. Many, 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 many people are taking melatonin. And if it was bad for us, I guess people would be dying like flies. As the expression goes, I don't know if you have that expression in Australia, but at any rate, I don't know of anyone who's ever died of melatonin. Many people have died of prescription drugs. Every year in the United States, 32,000 people die from the misuse of prescription drugs. Aspirin. Aspirin kills 10,000 people a year worldwide because of gastric ulcers and the associated hemorrhage. Nobody says a word about 10,000 people dying of aspirin. Everybody takes aspirin. It's not safe. I mean, I take aspirin, obviously, when I have to. Ibuprofen destroys your liver and kidneys. Now, he mentions things like that, but when it comes to melatonin for some reason, there are individuals who think, oh, that's absolutely taboo, absolutely taboo. I don't see it. I really do not see it. You can't kill an animal, you can't overdose. Mm. You can't give enough melatonin to an animal to discourage him even. You give him a massive dose of melatonin, he looks at you says, is that your best shot? <laughs> Again, I don't want you saying that melatonin is safe under every circumstance, that everybody should take it but it is seemingly a good wholesome molecule and you eat every day if you eat any food at all you're eating some melatonin i don't think it's gonna kill us i really don't and i don't the long-term effects like i say i i know people who are diabetics diabetics have atherosclerosis, that's a very high free radical related disease, and melanin is a super antioxidant, that take a gram, a thousand milligrams every day, and they have for many, many years to reduce atherosclerosis, you know, uh, blindness, loss of toes, nerve degeneration, all consequences of, of diabetes. That's a disease uh, severe. And if you can delay defer, prevent any of the effects with, even if you take insulin, your hyperglycemia still fluctuating and so forth. It's just a terrible, terrible disease. So, (sighs) safer than water. People drowned in water. Yeah, A lot of people drowned every year of water. Uh, what, are we going to get rid of water? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it just, I, again, uh, you know, I believe in prescription medications. In some cases, they're absolutely important. But I will give you one example. If you have cancer, one of the common drugs is called Dr. Rubicin. Dr. Rubicin, is a good anti-cancer agent. The problem is it's selectively taken up by mitochondria and your heart has a lot of mitochondria. And after you're on doxorubicin therapy, you may cure your cancer, but your heart is totally destroyed and the heart does not degenerate and you die of heart failure. Well, you lived five years longer but you die of heart failure. You de- die because of the doxorubicin toxicity to your heart. The quality of life is everything. Uh, there are drugs in the United States that uh, prescription drugs to s- delay aging. And when you check the details, they are delaying aging by three months. I mean, death by three months. Well, if you're when you're 75 years old. Three months is not, but but they push them very hard. The, the desire to live longer, take this drug. They don't talk about the quality of life, but you live longer and they don't tell you much. It make it, they make it sound like you live 20 years longer and you're vital and so forth. Not the case. These drugs are very, very toxic. Melatonin is good, not perfect. Melatonin is good. And I, I certainly am going to live the rest of my life with melatonin. And virtually everybody, my neighbors, my friends, my fellow scientists, almost all of them take melatonin. So,
0: for people who are trying to, you know, avoid these age-related conditions, you know, uh, the me- metabolic dysfunction, the um damage to the heart neurodegenerative neurodegeneration what what would be uh, the safest and most effective um you know dose to go with um you know that's it's not going to um you know really cause any trouble but also going to to uh, help out
1: good question i i would suggest that if people you had mentioned earlier that something to the effect that maybe a recommendation would be around 50. I, around 45 to 50, if you begin to take mal- mal- time, I would suggest a low dose. In other words, three to five milligrams. But as you age, and especially if you are genetically prone to certain diseases, you should certainly increase that amount. The three to five milligrams is sufficient to set your circadian rhythms But much of the damage that you experience with age is related to free radicals. For example, everybody knows vitamin C, you prevent oxidative damage. The usual dose of vitamin C is Linus Pauling, who won the Nobel Prize, recommended four grams daily. And if you expect two, three milligrams of melatonin to compete with four grams, even though it's a very, very, very good antioxidant, it's pretty tough to reconcile. So I would say, you know, begin at 45, 50, if you're going to do it, that's your choice. Small dose, every couple of years up up that dose, and maybe by the time you're 65, Seventy. I think what we're going to see is, again, that value change. I think it's going to increase with time, and especially under certain disease Can You probably know even the data on COVID. Do you know melatonin about COVID?
0: I've seen a few publications that you've been involved in. There are already
1: seven clinical trials showing that melatonin... uh, Lessens the severity of disease. Again, you always hear about the immunizations. Well, immunizations, right now, our vice president has COVID. She's been immunized. She's had two or three boosters, and she still gets COVID. A lot of people who got immunized still get COVID. Well, at any rate, with regards to time, I don't think 20 30 40 milligrams by the time you're my age would be unusual.
0: And do you I recommend any particular brand? I, I know there's some issue with um, you know regulation and not not having yeah.
1: That's a good question. I, I don't know what's available in in uh, one of the best brands we can determine in the United States because we toyed with some we measured them is something called Source Naturals. You can buy it online, Uh, and again, in reference to that, it's very, that's a very, seemed to be a very good source. It's sublingual, five milligram tablets, and where we buy it at a place called Costco, you can buy 245 milligram capsules for $12. Think about that, how cheap it is. Uh, I'll put it in the context of also COVID. COVID, one of the big drugs, if you get COVID, is remdesivir. Remdesivir treatment for a week costs $3,000. Melatonin treatment for a week, $10. And it may be just as effective as not more so. Uh, you know, it's it's a mess. Also, in the United States, we can buy a pure melatonin from a company in uh, Henderson, Nevada called Pure Bulk. A lot of people use, just buy melatonin, yeah. pure melatonin, yeah. pure bulk, and you can buy it in large quantities. I mean, if you want to, uh, I don't know if they sell kilograms, but they, you know, it, it, to use a kilogram of melatonin would take you a long, long time. Yeah. At, yeah. Twenty milligrams of whack, but, but, yeah, not, you know, I think I'm sure there are some shyster companies out there because melatonin is selling so well, mm. that are producing melatonin wannabes or about with half the melatonin that they advertise. Yeah. we have a system in the United States called USP, U.S. Pharmacopoeia, which evaluates some supplements, and if they have a USP. Sanction. That means they've been tested and and are good. And I think Source Naturals. uh, uh, There's a couple others I can't remember. I've heard you
0: mention Natrol.
1: Natrol, Natrol. I'm sorry. Yeah, Natrol also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Natrol is another one. That's another one of the USP sanctioned. And there's Nature's Bounty or something. And but there there are a dozen. That are available that are USP sanctioned in the United States, but there are a lot of melatonin products. Gosh. And again, I think it's, you know, people trying to capitalize on its popularity. And it's going to double by 2025, which means it'll be more than $2 billion worth of melatonin. Mm. It, melatonin sells more than vitamin C now in the United States. Vitamin C is a I, I, Are supplements very common in Australia? Yes. Yeah. They are. I, Well, so vitamin C that would not be an unusual molecule for people to take, and
0: not at all very popular. I
1: see. Yeah. Well, like I say, it it, also in the United States, but melatonin outsells vitamin C now. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, which is it's overtaken it in the last five six years. Vitamin C is a very vitamin E is very common here. Vitamin C. uh, Zinc, because of obviously because yeah. of COVID, and yeah. uh, but you know, and again, I'm not a big supporter necessarily of supplements, but of course, melatonin, I see is an exception. <laughs> <obviously>. <laughs> but, All right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, again, vitamin C isn't gonna hurt you. Vitamin, D, uh, if you give very high doses of vitamin C, you get a little skin. Lesion and so forth, but vitamin C, vitamin E. They're, I think they're, they're not going to do you any vitamin D3. We don't get enough sun, we're not getting enough UV, we're not getting enough vitamin D synthesis. I, I'm sure you're most people in Australia, like most people in the United States, their circulating vitamin D levels are too low. I'm sure, not
0: and mine, that, and that's, thankfully.
1: Pardon me, not mine, thankfully. Oh, great, well, and that, that means osteoporosis. Again, you know, there's a, a lot of things go wrong mm. when you don't get enough sunlight, and we avoid sunlight with a passion. I mean, humans generally avoid, except for those who want to lay in the sun, but beyond that, you know, we're, mm. so that's the situation, Cameron.
0: Well, look, I've got, Two, two or three more pages of questions, but I know you're a very busy man, so I'm yeah. going to have to let you go. We'll have to do
1: this again sometime because um, I have- Kevin, it's been a pleasure. It, it's been enjoyable because sometimes I interview, be interviewed by individuals who have no idea what they're talking about. And I have to explain where, how, why, when so but you, you are familiar with the literature, which makes it a lot easier to have a rational discussion. I appreciate it, and you be well.
0: Thank you so much, Russ. This you has bet. been Best wishes been to honor. you. All the best, best I'll talk wishes. to you soon.
1: Yeah, you bet,
0: be okay. well. Bye. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I had a really great time speaking with Russ, so I really hope you enjoyed the conversation as well. If you'd like to learn more about the work Russell is involved in, I've put a link in the episode notes that takes you straight to his publication portal where you can access all of the research he's been a part of. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on Spotify and YouTube and leave up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is a simple, no-cost way of supporting my work and helping me reach more listeners and also get more guests onto the show. Please feel free to leave any comments on my YouTube channel as well, as I do try and read through as many as I can. I've also put links to all of my social media platforms in the episode notes if you'd like to keep up to date with the podcast, information about health, or if you'd just like to reach out to me in general. Uh, Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Take care.